Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6 say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Our desire is that we would worship this one God. As believers, we believe that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's one God. And we worship Him. And our desire, as we talked about last week, is to offer pleasing sacrifices to Him in worship. And uh, I'm very grateful for our worship team this morning for guiding us in this process. Thank you, Krista, for the work you're doing. Uh, it's a joy to be able to sing together with one another as a kind of a culmination of the week behind us and as a strength for the week in front of us. Miss Chris read a passage from 1 Kings chapter 11 that talked about King Solomon. Solomon has a reputation as the wisest man that ever lived. And yet we're amazed how foolish he was. Solomon was a man who loved God with his heart, with his whole heart, until he set up idols in that heart, which led him to take wives that were from foreign nations, which worshipped foreign gods, and these women brought their foreign gods into his life. And before he knew it, he was erecting idols and worshipping these foreign gods. Idolatry and immorality have a close connection. Idolatry is anything that we set up in our heart that diverts our worship from God. Idolatry pulls us away from authenticity, from that which is acceptable. And in our day and age, there are all sorts of idols we can set up in our hearts. We can set up an idol of sports and hobbies. How many are yearning for me to be done with this sermon so you can watch the Bears game? And how many will never even hear me say that because they're not here because they want to watch the Bears game? Idols of ambition for the sake of personal gain. We think of this family who created this helium balloon to create some publicity, which no doubt backfired on them, but all for the sake of ambition. Idols of tolerance in our culture. And we see it throughout, of course, in our talk shows. No doubt, those, first among those is Oprah. Idols of spirituality. We saw that in the sweat lodge incident, people seeking spirituality and going at any length to receive it. And today in our text from Malachi chapter 2, there's an idol that leads God's people into a relationship with someone that is destructive, that severs their fellowship with God. And from our text today, we're going to see two pitfalls in particular. Two pitfalls that if we're not careful, will pull us away from living faithfully to God, which in turn will break our fellowship with Him. I'll say that again. These pitfalls will pull us away from our faithfulness to God and will sever or break our fellowship with God. It's not to say that you will no longer be His child, but as a child of God, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can't have a broken fellowship with Him. And that's a dark place to be. 
as we look at these two pitfalls that I'll mention in a few moments, in this message, my desire is to address various issues as we look at the text, pull out some implications, and then draw applications for our lives. We're going to look at what it means to be unequally yoked with a non-believer, if you might be familiar with that term. The relationship that a Christian and a non-Christian might have in dating, if there is one at all. We're going to talk about the connections between idolatry and immorality. And as we move into the second pitfall, we'll look at God's view of divorce. We'll look at what it means to guard your marriage, to fight for it at all costs. And we'll also look at what hope there is for those of us who've been wounded in any of these areas. Would you bow with me in prayer as we open up the Word of God, inspired by His Holy Spirit, without error and authoritative. So let's pray. Lord, Your Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, says the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12. And God, this morning I preach Your Word, and I pray, God, that not one word of my own would be spoken that would dishonor You. Lord, I pray that I be faithful in my exposition of these words and that the applications we draw out, God, you might prick our hearts and cause us to respond. Lord, we're reminded that our response can either be devoted to you or divided or, or just be on the defensive. And Lord, we want devotion. And that's my prayer for your people this morning. Holy Spirit, empower me for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Would you read with me Malachi chapter 2? I'm going to read verses 10 through 12. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, please open up to that. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. This is what God's word says. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. From these verses, the first pitfall that we are to avoid is the pitfall of participating in a relationship with an unbeliever if you yourself are a believer. I really wrestled how to word this point because in reality, the pitfall of dating or courting or however you want to call it, a non-Christian as a Christian, uh, that's not the primary issue in the text. The, the issue is marrying an unbeliever. But in our culture... You don't accidentally, you don't so happen to marry someone without having a prior relationship with them. Usually. <laughs> there is Vegas, right? So the passage, the, the, the thrust of the passage is to not be united with an unbelieving person, but as we see the implications, it begins in the dating relationship. Now some of you might be thinking, okay, is this sermon really going to be for me? Um, my desire is to go across the board in this message. So if you're a junior hire today 
and that girl sits next to you is really cute and you have some questions, I hope that this message can help you in discerning what God wants you to do. And if you're older in life, if you have questions regarding your marriage or your singleness, I pray this, me- this message would speak to you as well. Because from the text, God is addressing his people and he states it clearly at the end of verse 11. His beef with them is the fact that they've married the daughters of a foreign god. They've married idolatrous women. So as we go back to verse 10 and see what God has to say, let's unpack it. He says, have we not all one father? Israel knew that God was their father. He pulled them out of Egypt. He made them his own. He was their father. And it says, has not one God created us? See the emphasis on one here. There is a single singularity about this. God, though three persons, as I mentioned, Father, Son, and Spirit, is one in perfect harmony. And this one God created all of the universe, created each one of us, created the people of Israel. And Malachi is drawing this principle of oneness and then asks this question in the second part of verse 10. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? See, their issue was they had been disobedient to God, but Malachi recognized that the implications affected the whole community. Their sin was between them and God, but the whole community would suffer the repercussions of it. So why have you been faithless to one another in this? Why have you gone outside of Israel and taken pagan wives when there are women within Israel who worship God? Why why do you do this to one another? In verse 11 he says, Judah has been faithless. That word faithless shows up four times in verses 10 through 16 which is why I titled, subtitled this sermon that we must be faithful to one. He says, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. He covers the ground here. If you recall, the northern kingdom in Israel was called Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah and the capital city was Jerusalem. All three are mentioned in this text. Malachi is saying, throughout the land, there is widespread faithlessness. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. Strong words that Malachi uses here. And he says, he continues on, uh, the sanctuary of the Lord which, which the Lord loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. This is the issue that Malachi sees at stake here. God's people who were called by him that were the children of God, had married unbelieving, pagan, or idolatrous women. And then, they bring these women, of course, into their homes, no doubt setting up idols within their home, influencing the married partner. And then they'd have the nerve to come and worship Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Malachi says, you've profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. Strong words. But Malachi recognizes there's much at stake here because it not only reflects a heart that has set up an idol, like Solomon did, they didn't accidentally marry idolatrous women. They found it okay 
that they might compromise their relationship with God for the sake of maintaining a relationship with these women. And in verse 12, the Lord said, uh, Malachi says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. The result was a severed fellowship, broken fellowship with God. This truly is what's at stake as I look for the implications for us as a people here in 2009. You see, when we walk in a way that is contrary to what God has called us to do, we run the risk of breaking fellowship with God. And the principle that I draw here that I'm going to unpack, and I'm going to try to be careful as I unpack it because there's so many different aspects, but it's this. If you call yourself a child of God, it is unbiblical and even sinful to enter into a dating, courtship, relationship with someone who is not because it will sever your fellowship with God. Foreign gods in our hearts, idolatry, and this is what leads us down a path that would dishonor God. Now, how does one come to a place where we think it's okay to date a non-believer. Well, first of all, some of us might not have ever heard that. Some of us might think, this is really strict. This is really uh, exclusive. And God has the best of his people in mind here. And we're going to see these implications here because um, if we set our, our, our focus to worship God and then let that spill into our lives, that will no doubt provide the better, the more enjoyable way of living. Because then our fellowship with God is maintained and there is a delight in our lives with our relationships. Now there's a passage in 2 Corinthians that says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Because it says, what fellowship has light with darkness? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? This idea of being unequally yoked most of us are from the city. We don't know what it means to be on a farm. I certainly don't know what it means to be on a farm. But in, the, in this day, and uh, even I guess in, in these days still, the way that people would plow their ground was to have an ox. They would put a yoke on his shoulders and pair him up with another ox. And these ox had to be equal in strength, equal in size, so they can walk a straight line and plow the ground. If one ox was too small, then it would veer one way or another. Or if it was too weak... And when Paul says, don't be equally yoked with an unbeliever, what Paul is saying is, you can't have an ox and a horse. You just can't. Because you will not accomplish the task that it was created to accomplish, which is to till the field. And within relationships, the task, the goal of our relationship is to glorify God. So therefore, we cannot be unequally yoked. And to draw out a principle from that, and I'm not going to unpack this too much, but just to draw out a principle, I believe that also has implications for those who are more mature as believers, who've been in the faith longer, with those who have been in the faith for a shorter time. Because they may both be oxen, but one might be more strong, more mature than another. And Malachi's word, his rebuke is that they've taken foreign wives. they become unequally yoked. Now, I've heard this common phrase before. You may have heard it. 
perhaps even used it, that you've done some missionary dating. Have you ever heard that one before? I'm being a missionary to my boyfriend or my girlfriend. So I'm going to enter into this relationship and my goal is to lead them to Jesus. That's not going to work. That's not going to work because in relationships, we influence one another. And there are various ways an unbeliever can influence a believer. A Christian can be influenced by a non-Christian. And missionary dating just doesn't work. Because what if that person doesn't want to proceed in the place of faith, but you end up falling in love with this person? What do you do? What do you do when they pull out a ring? And you thought, this missionary dating thing isn't panning out the way I thought it would. Some people say, well, we're compatible. The only difference we have is our faith. Godliness will always pull away from God. Uh, godliness will always be pulled away from godlessness. Belief will be pulled away from unbelief. It's just a natural thing that happens. And granted, we would want to influence one, but we just don't know. And I must specify here, I meant to mention this earlier. Um, I've very intentionally mentioned dating relationships. It would be foolish to think that as Christians, we should not have relationships with people who are not Christians. That's, that's, a, that's incorrect. That's wrong. That's not what God intends, because we're supposed to be salt and light in our world. So I needed to state that because I forgot to do that earlier. So what does it mean to have a relationship that honors God? A dating relationship to have as its goal the glory, glory and the, the, the honoring of God. When we enter into a dating relationship, our focus should not be just for the here and now, but for what might be able to happen. There's got to be an understanding that this thing may end up in marriage. And that mindset in a relationship is what honors God. Um, you know, I, I was trying to think of the best way to say this. Um, there are various ways we could be influenced by people. And we could convince ourselves to think that certain relationships are appropriate. And we start thinking, well, this person isn't that bad um, this person really is a respectable person. And I saw a really interesting interview this past week with a guy by the name of Rain Wilson. He's, a, he's an actor in the office. Uh, hilarious guy. And he's, uh, he's of the Baha'i faith. And Rain Wilson w- started a website that, was, uh, that opened up dialogue for people to talk about their religious beliefs. And uh, he was a hilarious interview. Uh, he was really uh, an interesting person. And the interviewer asked him a question. He said, who are the five dead people that you would like to meet someday? And the first person he mentioned was Jesus Christ. And my first thought was, Jesus isn't dead. And one person might think, you know, this guy's a nice guy, a respectable person. But a worldview that is contrary to what God has called us to believe, that Jesus isn't dead, he is risen, is a place that we cannot go in a relationship with somebody. One of the nicest people I ever met in my entire life, and I mean this, was a person I worked with at LaSalle Bank uh, about six years ago. This gentleman was uh, kind, soft-spoken. And I remember one day a, a customer c- 
cursed him out, yelled at him, insulted him, made even racial slurs to him, and this man took it. And after this customer left, everyone and people were coming around and saying, hey, you know, you could sue him for defamation of character and on and on and on. And he just thought, no, I'm not going to do that. And I remember saying, like, wow, you have a lot to tell your wife about today, huh? He's like, I'm not going to bring it up. It's not worth it. And I just thought, this guy is just so peaceable. But this guy did not know that Jesus Christ, did not believe that Jesus Christ was his Savior. And no matter how nice he was, his worldview was contradictory to that of which the Bible teaches. And what's at stake when we enter into a relationship with somebody like this is broken fellowship with God as we see in Malachi's case. You know, verse 12 says, May the Lord cut from the tent of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. What's at stake is that an innocent relationship could turn into something that's very serious or a relationship could lead one to compromise their own moral convictions. And the book of Jude tells us that we have to snatch people from the fire. And we need to be courageous in pulling people and saying, come back, don't be there. That's dangerous, you're playing with fire. And then the question raises, of course, what if you're already in this type of married relationship? What if you are married presently to someone who does not believe that Jesus Christ has died for them? 1 Peter 3 has a great answer for us. And is directed toward women in particular, but this principle applies to all. It says, In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. The call is to live in a way that would pull your unbelieving spouse and influence them to God, to, to know Him, to love Him. 1 Corinthians 7 says that we should not separate from our spouse if they are an unbeliever, but we must remain in that relationship and pray for them and pray that God might change their hearts and bring them to himself. So the other question is, what do I do if I'm presently in a dating relationship with someone who is not a Christian? Well, Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, you've got to cut it off. And I don't say that Softly, I, I understand that there is much tension there. Because our affections become intertwined. Our desires, our love for an individual. But if we have made this person an idol in our lives, then we will value that relationship more than we will our relationship with God. But if we're going to value our fellowship with God even more so, then, if, then we must cut out that relationship. It will hurt. It's painful. But this is what must be done if we're going to walk in a way that honors God. See, God wants our best in mind. He's not trying to put rules down, make us uncomfortable and angry or hurtful or hurt. You may know of and you may be one who is grieved over this situation in your own life, wishing you made right decisions in the past. And Malachi's passage comes to us as a warning. It's a warning against putting up idols in our hearts that would lead us in this direction. It's a warning against compromising the biblical convictions. It's a warning to not enter into a relationship that would dishonor God because that relationship may end up in marriage. 
And that is a dangerous place to be. So the first pitfall that Malachi mentions is the pitfall of entering into an unbelieving relationship with somebody. The second pitfall is the pitfall of an unguarded marriage. And we see that in verses 13 through 16. Would you follow with me as I read from verse 13? He says, And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, but he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. I mean, this is a grim picture. These are people who are coming to God with their offerings, saying, God, take it, receive it. And God says, I don't want it. And they cry out even more. They cry out with tears, saying, God, please receive my offering. And God says, I don't want it. And why? Well, verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Why does he regard my offering? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. He says you have been faithless to this wife. Some of your translations might say that you've dealt with her treacherously. And it carries, on the one hand, this idea of breaking a covenant with her. That you've treated her with contempt. You've neglected. But as we see in in a passage in Jeremiah where this word is similarly used, and in chapter 3, verse 5, within this understanding of faithlessness can also incur the idea of adultery. And Malachi says to these people, because you have acted this way in your marriage, God refuses to accept your offering. God will not accept your offering until you've come to him in repentance. He says, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. This word companion is used of a friend. It's used usually of friends in a in a male and a guy relationship a guy has his buddy they're close friends they go out they hang out and they're really close and Malachi says your wife is your companion by covenant and you've treated her this way I know for me I am blessed to have been able to marry my best friend and for those of you who are single here today as you seek God's will for a spouse someday You look for a best friend. You look for a friend, a companion, who can be your husband or wife by covenant, if that would be God's will to bring you into a married relationship with someone. Malachi continues in verse 15. He says, Did he, referring to God, not make them one? That's talking about the the one man and one woman relationship. God has made them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union. You know, Jesus says, <clears throat> excuse me, Matthew 19, that what God has put together, let no one separate. God puts together the marriage bond. His spirit stamps it. He is the glue. And Malachi says, did God not make you one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And he says, what was that one God seeking? What did God want from that? And he says, godly offspring. Now, Malachi is not saying that when two Christians get married and they have a child, that child will be a Christian. He's not saying that. But he's saying that they will be born into a home that is godly. They are the fruit of godliness. And you take that on the flip side to those who took daughters of foreign gods 
and they unite with one who follows Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and they have what type of offspring? Certainly not godly. They are not the fruit of godliness, but the fruit of godlessness. And this is why God sees this as such a, 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 an important thing, an essential thing, that we might be united to people who fear God as one flesh, bound and glued together by His Spirit. And then this command comes after he says that God was seeking godly offspring. He says, So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Guard yourself. Fight for your marriage. He's telling them. There's so many ways we can understand this. Mark chapter 7, we studied this in our Mosaic group on Monday. Jesus says, from the heart comes all sorts of evils. And of those evils, he lists adultery. Jesus recognized that our sin begins here. And Malachi says, guard it. Protect it. And if you are a married individual today, you've got to protect your marriage at all costs. Don't go to those places that arouse affections that are contrary to your affections to your wife. Don't involve yourself with entertainment, with people, with scents, certain smells that stir within you something that is godless. You know what those are. As a married person, guard your heart from divisive thoughts to your spouse. Just, just don't, let, don't entertain them. Most of the battle is in our minds. Faithlessness doesn't happen just without an, an accident. It begins within. Don't begin comparing your spouse with someone on TV. Don't compare your spouse with someone else's spouse. Does not God say, don't covet your neighbor's wife? Pray when things are bad in your marriage. When, when the spark that was there isn't there, don't bail out. Ask God to renew it, to restore it, to ignite it. Ask God to show you to love your spouse with creativity. There's so many times I've prayed that prayer. You know, we've gone to movies. <laughs> we've gone out for dinner. Like God, show me how to be creative in my love. For Erica, how to be intentional, not just spur of the moment. Spontaneity is fun, but intentionality is fun as well. God, show me how to be creative. That our marriage bond might be glued. Focus on the Family has on their website what they call marriage killers. And uh, I'm going to mention eight of them just in brief. They give about 10 or 12 with a full description of these. And um, in fact, what I'll probably do is put these points on my blog um, that I've begun several weeks ago. And if you want to look into this more, I'll put a link there so you can see what these marriage killers are and what the explanations are. But first of all, he's, they say that an overcommitment in your life is a marriage killer. When you're so busy running around that you don't cross paths. A second thing they said is excessive debt and creates conflict. Selfishness is a third thing. When two people are out for their own in a marriage relationship, that doesn't work. Fourth thing is unrealistic expectations. Fifth, 
This idea that the grass is greener on the side of infidelity. Six, career failure or career success. With much, with much wealth can come much trial. And those of us who have career success or failure must be careful to guard our marriages. These points are not inevitable. They're symptoms that if we're not careful, they can consume us in our marriages. Seventhly, alcohol or substance abuse is a marriage killer. If you have an addiction to alcohol, cut it out. It's not going to do your marriage any good. And if you have children, it's not going to do them good either. Eighthly, pornography, gambling, and all other sorts of addictions. These are marriage killers. And if we're going to guard our marriages, we, know we must fight for it. And as a single person, how do you fight for your purity? Either with the expectation that perhaps you might marry someday, or even for the reality, perhaps, if you believe that God has called you to singleness. How do you fight for your purity? Well, cultivate tendencies of purity in your life. Be careful how and where you are alone with someone of the opposite sex. Don't be a flirt. Don't wink your eye at one and then give that nice little smile at another. Flirtatiousness is dangerous. Just don't do it. We must protect our lives, protect our marriages, protect our purity. Malachi says, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Now that phrase, the wife of your youth, is, is a beautiful phrase and it shows up in the book of Proverbs. Let me pull it up right here. It says, Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 to 20, through 23 states, but I'm going to look at verse 18 through 21. It says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all of his paths. This idea of the wife of your youth carries this idea of this, this is the woman that you've loved. This is the person you've shared years with. This is the person who is your companion by your side. You've experienced the deepest level of intimacy with this person. She is the love of your youthfulness. And Malachi says, guard your relationship with her. And for you, you women, guard your relationship with your husband. Malachi continues in verse 16. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if you have an NIV Bible or an NASB or a New Living Translation or pretty much any other translation except for the English Standard Version, your Bible says that God hates divorce. And either ways, uh, either translations are understandable from the Hebrew. As I've read from the ESV, it is this idea that one who hates and divorces his wife brings violence upon his, himself. And God despises that. 
And in some of your Bibles, the emphasis is more on the fact that God hates divorce, both of which are true. In our culture, it's so easy for divorce to take place. In the state of Illinois, there are these laws that say there are no-fault cases where one can be divorced because, of, because reconciliation has failed or would be unfeasible. That's as one point states it. Or divorce can happen because... Because, uh, let's see, I'm sorry, I missed it here. Because it's not practical to be reconciled. And as statistics show that 40 to 50% of all marriages still, to this day, end in divorce. And Jesus teaches in Malachi 19 that, there are, that, that divorce was something that God has instituted because of the wickedness of humanity. Now that being said, Jesus does recognize that there are Biblical grounds for divorce. And we don't have time to unpack these thoroughly. But in brief, Jesus says, first of all, for the, in the case of marital unfaithfulness, there are grounds for divorce there. And as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and other passages, we also have this idea that perhaps even within the, this understanding that if someone deserts their married partner, then divorce also is biblically accepted. And Jesus recognizes that these things are unfortunate scenarios and they are things that sadden God, but they, they are things that happen. And I'm no fool here today. I'm not, I'm not a fool to think that there are not people here today who've been scarred and hurt and wounded by divorce. Whether it be a fault of your own or the fault of another. And I pray that you indeed have sought the Lord's healing that if you are the guilty party, you sought his forgiveness and the forgiveness of the one you offended. Because God does say that there's hope for us who've been hurt in these ways. And Malachi says, guard your marriage. And it's hurtful to think that mine has fallen apart or that mine has failed. But the book of Joel has a remarkable word for the people of Israel. There was a plague on the land, a plague of locusts. And it ate up all their crops. And the people were in despair. They were hopeless. They thought that things were going to end on them. And in Joel chapter 2, verse 25, God makes this statement. He says that I will restore what the locust has eaten. That I will restore what's been eaten from your life. And some of you need to cling to that promise who have been wounded by another. That God will restore. He will carry you. He will uphold you. He will bring healing to you. Malachi concludes with a reminder. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is a strong word today. But if you notice, there's two, or there's one common theme that interweaves between these two sections. When I looked at the fact that God wants His children to be in relationships with people who share their same faith in Jesus Christ, and when I looked at the need and the essentialness to guard our marriage, there are two, in both of these two scenarios, there's one thing at stake, primarily. In the first part, we see that in verse 12, where it says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant. There's a, at stake our fellowship with God. And then the second part, second part, we see in verse 13 that God no longer receives their offering for those of them who are being faithless. Again, at stake was 
fellowship with God. See, the book of Malachi is a confrontation to the people of Israel because they become misguided in their worship and in their actions they've severed their, their relationship with God. And these two pitfalls, Malachi says, we must, be, must be avoided because they will pull you away. And we as a church must take these to heart. Say, God, how am I going to apply this to my life? God, this brings up so many difficult emotions and hurtful reminders. But God, I'm going to trust you to strengthen me, to give me the grace to respond in a way that, that honors you. As we stated at the outset, our response is one of three. Are you going to be on the defensive? Are you going to maintain a relationship that dishonors God and say, well, you know what, I, I really like this person. He's really a good guy. Are you going to be on the defensive and try to justify why it is acceptable when Malachi says it's not? Or are you going to be divided and say, I know this person does not believe what I believe, but I'm still going to try to have it both ways. I can't do that. That's dividedness and that can't happen. Israel tried it, but God says, you profaned my sanctuary. Don't do that. Or will you be devoted and say, although I really care about this individual in my dating relationship, I care more about my fellowship with you, Almighty God. Help me. Or with reference to your marriage, are you on the defensive? Or with reference to your purity, are you thinking, you know, you don't know what it, mean, what it feels like to be married to this guy or to this woman? Or maybe you're thinking, you don't know how hard it is to be sexually pure as a single person in this culture. Be wary of being on the defensive. Or perhaps you're divided, trying to go on the so-called greener grass and yet trying to stay within your home. I saw one of the most saddening things yesterday while doing research for this message on Nightline's website. They had a discussion on adultery and faithlessness in marriage. And there was a person, or two people, who were trying to advocate that infidelity in marriage can actually be a positive thing for a family. Because then the person doesn't have to lie or be secret. That's... That's destructive. And if we're going to try to have it both ways, we cannot walk with divided hearts. Or will you respond in devotion and say, God, my marriage is on the rocks. Things are horrible, but I'm going to fight for it. Or perhaps even with your own purity as a single saying, God, I don't know what your plan is for my future, but God, I'm going to maintain uprightness for your glory's sake. God wants us to be faithful to Him in our worship. And we must avoid these pitfalls and respond in devotion because there is the true joy and peace and pleasure and delight in life. Dear people of God, may you be faithful to one to one God, to one spouse, to one pursuit of purity. And don't divert to the left or to the right for the sake of God's glory. Would you pray with me?
Father in heaven, we lean upon your grace and we ask for your protection. Lord God, we we know the tendencies in our culture and God, we just ask for help to be people who fight for what you want knowing that right there is the greatest joy in life. In Jesus' name, amen. We've talked a lot about our faithfulness to God. And right now we're going to celebrate a time of the Lord's Supper and reflect on God's faithfulness to us. I'm going to ask my brother, Pastor Robert, to come forward. And he's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper.